Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support to learn more. This month, Green Dreamer is also sponsored by my favorite tea brand, Arbor Teas, and I'm so grateful for their support during this time. They source loose leaf and organic certified teas. They use backyard compostable packaging, which they've been doing for the past 10 years, by the way. Their operations run on solar energy, and all of their efforts are offset by carbon I myself only bought tea from Arbor Teas this past year. I love supporting them as a small family-owned business, and I also love gifting it to friends and family to support their well-being. To shop Arbor Teas organic teas, just head to arborteas.com. That's A-R-B-O-R-T-E-A-S dot com. Consumers can literally vote with their dollars and say, no, I am not going to support this company. So A, you can stop buying from companies that don't share your values, but B, you can actually have an activist mindset and tell other people about why they shouldn't buy from these companies. That was Laura Wittig, the co-founder and CEO of Brightly, which is a curated discovery platform for all things ethical and environmentally conscious. I was recently just a guest on their podcast called Good Together within an episode titled Ways to Stop Climate Change. So if you're interested, you can head on over to tune into that using whichever app you're using to tune into this one. Onwards here, we're going to be exploring what independent, smaller scale conscious businesses can learn from the corporate world to thrive in the competitive market landscape today, keeping in mind that there is no level playing field as larger corporations actually benefit in cost savings from cutting corners. What purpose-driven businesses may be able to accomplish that nonprofits with similar missions may have greater challenges with and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. So it's wonderful to be here today. I have been inspired by conscious consumerism for quite a few years now. I actually got my career started off at Amazon Fashion in Seattle, where my job was to sell as many poorly made shoes and handbags as I possibly could. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I got pretty good at that job, so much so to where I started to really think through what my personal impact was on the environment, you know, as I thought through my own spending habits, but also what I was doing with my career. So that's sort of what led me to today, my journey, and sort of what inspired me to start my new company, which is Brightly. I was going to say, I saw that when you were the marketing manager and editorial curator at Amazon, you helped to drive millions in fashion revenue and caught Jeff Bezos' eye with your performance there. So, I mean, I'm sure it's been a journey for you, but did you sort of become a conscious consumer while you were there? And if so, how did you grapple with wanting to champion conscious consumerism and be a part of that movement personally, but at work having to help drive sales for a company that contributes to driving fast fashion and mindless consumerism? And of course, I want to be clear that there's no judgment because everyone's paths are unique and we don't all get the privilege to earn a living doing what we love and strongly believe in. And I feel like that's also really relatable for a lot of our listeners. But I'm curious what that experience was like for you. 
For sure. So like I mentioned, Amazon actually was pretty early on in my career. So I had graduated from school, actually moved out to the Seattle area. My husband was in the Navy, so he got stationed out there. And I, even as a child, had always been interested in the internet and coding. And like back then, it was early days of internet. And I remember literally using binary to code a video game when I was a kid. (laughs) And it was something that really inspired me to get into tech. And so as I was out in Seattle, realized that Amazon was a really interesting place to be. Of course, it was much smaller than it is today, but even back then it was still a very large company. And also saw that there was a challenge in getting people to buy fashion on Amazon. And I've always been a huge proponent in my professional career of constantly moving in service of learning and growing. And I think Oftentimes people get stuck in careers and they can't really get out because they put these constraints on them. And my constraint has always just been, am I learning? Am I growing? And so that has been something very core to me. So anyway, really thought that there was an interesting challenge there to Amazon. Most people come to that website to buy essentials, to buy things, well, essentials and also things they don't need, (laughs) but they don't really think about it from a fashion perspective, or at least they didn't back then. So I did really interesting things like digging into data to understand people's propensity to buy fashion items, even if they never had done so. So at Amazon, I had access to pretty much every customer in the world, which is really interesting. I was able to see purchasing patterns and kind of figure out how to influence them in that perspective. So it was a very fascinating job. But like I said, I had not really been thinking about the impact of fast fashion on, on the planet. And really what made me think about this was there was two, two pivotal moments that happened. One was I actually sat in front of the fashion editor's closet at Amazon And I would get headaches. And of course, you've probably heard Amazon is a pretty stressful place to work. (laughs) So I thought that I was getting stress headaches. And possibly I was. But one thing I realized was the fashion editor would actually open up her closet and unpack things from time to time. And she would receive a ton of items that actually were made of PVC and like really poorly made fabrics and that had this kind of nasty off-gassing when she'd open the boxes. So I was actually sitting and just like smelling this off-gassing. And I think that was giving me headaches. So I kind of took a pause there to think through like, wow, what are even the materials that are going into these shoes and handbags, et cetera. And then the second thing was I had the opportunity to watch the True Cost documentary. And I'm sure most of your listeners have at least heard of it, if not watched it. But, you know, it basically details a tragedy that happened at Rana Plaza to barkers in Bangladesh. And I mean, that just really, really opened up my eyes to the human impact of fashion in addition to the environmental impact. Right. And with you having worked at various large corporations like Amazon, Google and Apple, I'm sure you've gained a good insider's understanding of how they've been able to dominate their spaces and markets and grew to have the influence that they have. And I'm sure that a lot of brands and small independent business owners within the conscious lifestyle space can certainly learn a lot from your insights as well. But I'm curious before we dive into that, What are your thoughts on when marketing sort of becomes manipulative? So like, I feel like a lot of these fast fashion brands, they've gotten so good at doing this that they're able to convince people to buy a lot of stuff that they don't really need. So I guess what are your thoughts on that in general? 
For sure. I mean, I think we're just seeing right now in the space, it's we're seeing an explosion of terms that are really targeted towards the conscious consumer, which I think is an amazing thing, right? Like even three or four years ago, I don't think the term conscious consumer was widely known as it is today. So I think there's a really amazing positive thing happening with small brands and big brands alike trying to then get into this conscious consumerism movement. That's great. To your point, though, on the other side, we do have a groundswell of bigger brands who are engaging in, for lack of a better term, greenwashing. And oftentimes, I've I've talked to a bunch of journalists in the space, and they always like to say they'll get reached out to by either a big brand or small brand launching a new product, for instance. And the journalist will say, great, like, how how are you green? How are you eco-friendly? And the brand will say, oh, well, we, we donate a portion of our proceeds to a charity. And that is just really not the, that's not what we're talking about here, right? I think donating to charity is amazing. And I think brands that do that should be commended for it. But I don't think that they should be able to say that they are, quote unquote, an ethical and sustainable brand, because in my mind, and the way we think about it from a Brightly perspective, we want to encompass as many pieces of the supply chain as we can. We want to be holistic when we look at things. Most brands aren't going to get a 10 out of 10 across all these verticals, but we do want to see like a demonstrated commitment to making the world a better place through things like innovations and materials and supply chain responsibility, things of that nature. And the irony is that sometimes with these big brands that only donate a little bit, like 1%, 2% to charity, is that when they don't have these social and environmental missions baked into everything that they do, or if they're not even doing their best to really embody these missions, oftentimes they can be contributing to the very issues that they're then going to donate a certain percentage of their proceeds to help address. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like we see this a lot, actually, in the buy one, give one space where, you know, I think Tom's was one of the first brands to do this. And while they they have a great mission, right, they want to provide shoes around the world to people who need them. And I think they, of course, started to create this swelling of conscious consumers that may or may not have been exposed to any type of charitable model when they thought through purchasing. So I think they absolutely need to be commended for that. I think on the flip side, people who are a bit more skeptical of, of that model mention that when you flood a market with goods, you actually take away that local market's ability to provide those goods themselves. So I'm sure there's like, of course, markets where they may not be able to create the product. And then that that's one one thing, right? But I think shirts, shoes, things like that can usually be made locally. So thinking through like, maybe that instead of going that model, it would be great to, you know, perhaps give to a local charity and also make sure that you've got a responsible supply chain in place, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So of course, you talked a little bit about your experience at Amazon. You also worked on Google, Apple, I believe Adobe as well. Are there any strategies you feel like we can adopt to help elevate our smaller scale, independent, socially and eco-conscious growers, makers and brands to help tip the scale in this marketplace in their favor? Absolutely. So this is actually one of the reasons I started Brightly, which was as a consumer, I was becoming more and more exposed to ethical and sustainable brands. And short of Patagonia and Reformation and a few Allbirds, a few big names that I think have become household names, we have a lot of amazing brands in this space that are doing 
millions and millions of dollars in revenue each year, but they aren't quite having the impact that they want to have on the planet as a business. That's one thing I also want to mention too. Like everybody doesn't have to build a massive business to have an impact. So that's like one key takeaway I hope people have today, which is like you as a, as a founder, as a business owner need to understand like what scale of business you want to have. With Brightly, I really want to create a large tech company that is the scale of some of these household names and the scale of the companies that I myself have worked at in the past. And so I, as I think back on my past experience, actually when I was at Google, I was doing social impact work for them. I actually worked on the search team directly with search engineers. And my job there was to connect Google users who were coming to Google in a time of need to the most appropriate crisis hotline that they needed to get to. So for instance, if somebody was coming to Google and they had run into somebody who was a victim of human trafficking and wanted to help that person, they would come to Google and say, how do I help a victim of human trafficking? And what we would do is see what their location was and then give them the most preferable hotline to contact based in their space. And I like to tell that story because A, it kind of comes back to my my original thoughts around data. So what I would do from a day-to-day basis was look at queries that people were coming to Google and searching for, and then seeing how we could best serve them through hotlines. So it was a difficult job to say the least. I had to look at some really uncomfortable subject matter, but at the end of the day, I knew that the greatest impact that I could have as an employee at Google, but also one of the greatest impacts Google could be having on the world was to take social impact work and scale it on a massive scale. And in my mind, the only way to do that is when you have a for-profit business that can power that movement. So I love nonprofits. I love NGOs. I worked with them all the time at Google. We continue to work with them as various partners from a Brightly perspective. But at the end of the day, oftentimes the way nonprofits are set up don't necessarily allow them to create this kind of massive scale. So in terms of like design thinking and wanting to think through how to create the biggest impact, I've always wanted to apply, you know, product management, software development type initiatives to the way we do things at Brightly. And I myself am technical. So I did a lot of the initial development on Brightly as the CEO. I can't really do that all the time anymore. So we've got a team now in place to do that. And, you know, like I said, I originally taught myself to code. I do think everybody should take at least one sort of beginner learn to code class just so you can feel empowered by the internet because I think oftentimes we're so, I don't know, so divorced from the concept. You feel a little bit hopeless or helpless when you see bad actors like some of these social media channels sharing your data and influencing elections and things like that. I think we can all feel very like helpless in that space. And so we kind of vilify the internet or just the concept of the internet. And from my perspective, just learning even what makes up different pieces on the internet can be like helpful and a bit comforting. So hopefully, I mean, that was a lot of stuff. (laughs) Hopefully I answered your question, but happy to go into more detail if needed. Yeah. So previously I've had nonprofit founders tell us about what nonprofits are able to do that for-profit businesses may not be able to. So I'd love to get your perspective on the flip side since you brought it up earlier. So what are some things you feel like for-profit businesses might be able to do that nonprofits may have more limitations on in terms of trying to create positive impacts in, in our world? One thing that really comes to mind for me is just 
access to capital and access to revenue. So uh, nonprofits rely primarily on donations, either from individuals or from corporations or from, you know, partners that be. And I I have a few friends that work in this space. I know that oftentimes a big piece of running a nonprofit is actively going out and fundraising and writing grants. Like (laughs) I often not really have written too many grants in my life, but I know that they're time consuming. So I think having to devote that time to that process definitely takes away from your business. Now, that being said, from Brightly's perspective, we are now venture-backed. We have investors. And so as a CEO, I do also have to spend time on fundraising. However, it's a bit more managed. Um, and if it, if you do it right, which hopefully, like, we're so early, we like, literally, I don't know if your listeners know, we literally just pulled the curtains off Brightly.eco in November of last year of 2019. So very new, lots of things happening. But from a fundraising perspective, founders, um, the advice to us typically is to time box that so that we're really only focusing on that for a few weeks out of the year. And then hopefully you, A, don't have to go raise more money quickly because you've been able to raise the amount that you need for a longer amount of time. But B, you can do what people like to say is, fundraise from your customers, which means you can use the revenue that you're generating as a for-profit business to then have capital for your business. And I think that is the difference where nonprofits and people have to rely on the generosity of others. At the end of the day, there's just different ways to get funding. So I think it can be really helpful to have that for-profit sort of engine behind you. Mm. And this kind of leads me to another question is that As it stands today, the companies that have the most financial capital behind them often are the ones that haven't been doing things that responsibly. So it's sad, but the reality is that a lot of brands, when they cut corners, they're able to save on a lot of costs compared to smaller companies that are really taking into consideration every piece, paying premium for their workers, paying for premium materials, organic fibers, and so forth. So when we have this sort of injustice baked into the marketplace, how do we work with that? Because the companies with the most financial capital behind them will always be able to do the best storytelling, invest the most in marketing and reaching potential customers compared to smaller brands that are able to have a lot of positive impacts, but haven't been able to scale because they don't have the financial capital to reach as many people as they would like. The answer to this question for me is conscious consumerism. So With the way capitalism is set up in the United States and really the way it operates around the world, unfortunately, businesses are not rewarded for doing things the right way with these systems that we have in place. You can think a lot about like the robber barons that were operating in the United States many, many years ago that we learned about in history class. I mean, they literally operate on a winner-take-all type model, which you're going to do whatever you need to, to to win. And that's kind of where we find ourselves today. The good news is consumers can literally vote with their dollars and say, no, I am not going to support this company. So A, you can stop buying from companies that don't share your values. But B, you can actually have an activist mindset and tell other people about why they shouldn't buy from these companies and make noise on social media. And I think... Social media gets a bad rap. I think there's really some positive things about it. There's also some negative things about it. And the one thing I want to, I like to remain a bit positive about it is because 
really we as individuals have such a powerful way to create noise now, unlike we ever had before. And so, I mean, you can even, this is like a very strange example, but I don't know if you remember the scandal that happened on United Airlines where they were unfortunately being violent to their passengers. It was crazy. I think this was last year, maybe two two years before. And people literally went onto any social media channel that they could get and told people, hey, look, like this is what United is doing. We really shouldn't fly them. If you, if you believe very much in, in the power of conscious consumerism, let's vote with our dollars. And the um, end result was that United had to do a lot of things. I mean, they literally did employee, they shut down various planes and various parts of their business to give trainings to their employees about like how not to act. It really created awareness of this really broken system that they had in place. So from a conscious consumer's perspective, even if you have committed to saying, no, I don't want to buy something, that's great because that already signals, like we talked about earlier, you are not now financing that company. You are not becoming a quote-unquote investor in that company. You're not giving them any capital, which is great. But if you tell other people about what they're doing, you kind of multiply that impact and you you just continue to create change from that perspective. Well, I'd love to move on to Brightly now. So your focus there is to really empower conscious consumers around the world. Are there any common barriers or misconceptions around being a conscious consumer that you think we have to debunk and address? Oh, that's a good question. I think I think a lot of people think that being a conscious consumer is A, stressful, B, sort of outside their daily life, like it requires a huge shift in their daily life, and, and C, they think it doesn't really matter. So we already covered why it matters to be a conscious consumer, so I won't harp too much on that. But from an ease and sort of stress-free perspective, I mean, look, it is it is hard to find brands that share your values. And to the point we talked about earlier, greenwashing is rampant. And so the reason why I decided to create Brightly and now have a company built around this is we need a trusted voice in the space that is going to come after this problem in a little bit of a different way. So we like to say that we are the go-to resource for people who want us to make things easier for them. So rather than having a brand directory full of hundreds of brands, those exist already. And they're so those are some amazing companies. Like I think people need to support those types of, of companies. But we actually said, you know what, we're not going to do that. We're going to go and try a bunch of products. We've already had done that as a team, but like try more products, go out and talk to new companies and see who is really the best of the best. And so that's who we focus on on Brightly. So we have like 10 brands across many different verticals. We also feature their their top selling products and, and their most durable and great products from that perspective. Because again, we want to simplify things for people. We also, since we are not the payment processor or the, the marketplace for these products, so we actually don't have a bias in terms of that shopping. Now, we do get occasional affiliate revenue if people choose to buy the products that we mention, but it's not the primary business model behind what we're doing. We actually like to think of ourselves a bit more as a media company and also a community place for people to gather. So really, that's what we're focused on is empowering people by giving them really good advice by doing it in a non-judgmental way. So we like to meet people in the middle. We understand that 
life is crazy, especially right now, as you and I record this podcast, we're kind of going through one of the craziest times that I think any of us have ever been through. And so there's a lot going on. We want to make it easy for people. We, we want to meet them where they are, give them the right recommendations, and then give them a space to like connect with each other. So that's kind of the future of Brightly is, is for us to continue to be this sort of, <laughs> we like to say we're like your BFF who has got always the good recommendations. I think everybody has one of those in their friend circle. So we like to be that for our audience and want to really be, be a really bright spot on the internet. Right. I love all of this. I think it's really important to make all of this information as accessible as possible. And I I really support the idea of meeting people where they are because it just really opens this topic up to anybody. And that's what we need is to engage a lot more people than just the little eco bubble of people who are already quite knowledgeable about these topics and already know what to look for and things like that. And I'm curious, of course, you're trying out a lot of products, but when you're vetting and doing research on which brands and products to even try and then recommend, what criteria do you look for to determine whether a company is ethical and sustainable? Yeah, so we like to adopt a holistic approach. So I think this means something to a lot of people. But what we define this as is looking at every piece of what we consider to be a conscious business. So number one, we like to look at the supply chain, like who is creating these products? Where are they being created? What do the the factory conditions look like where they're being created? Are the employees who are creating this product giving back to the community or positively impacting the community in some space? I'm sorry, both the employees and the company. We also look at the materials that are contained in these products. So are organic or recycled or other awesome textiles, for instance, being used when possible? We do like to say that like we don't have like a hard and fast rule on textiles because or materials because again there's always pros and cons. I think Patagonia of course is a great example where they realize as like a an outdoor outfitter they've got to use more what we call technical fabrics. And so sometimes these technical fabrics might have to use more petroleum based sources or something so that they can be more durable. And I think one thing that we like to think about is, is this product great? Is it beautiful? Is it something that you would be proud to have in your home? We also like to think about, is it durable? So you might have a material that is maybe a bit more eco-friendly than the other material, but it might not last you as long. So we like to think, again, through holistically, we have conversations about this. If a brand claims to have certain certifications, we like to ask about that and see, you know, what's the documentation look like? How does that happen? And finally, again, like, we also believe in the power of a really, really great, beautiful product, like I just mentioned. So, is this something that's going to be a conversation starter? Is this something that you're going to be really proud to wear or to display in your home? Because at the end of the day, conscious consumerism grows when people talk about it to one another. And so we want those awesome products that people are going to stop you on the street and be like, oh my gosh, where'd you get that? And you can say, oh, well, it's actually from Patagonia, but I found out about it because of Brightly. Or they maybe don't even mention Brightly. That's fine, too. They, they mention why Patagonia matters. And so, again, we want to be this trusted resource and space for people who are looking to make a difference. 
And I did want to touch on this. Brightly recently published a guide called How to Buy Nothing for a Year. So I was thinking about that in conjunction with this pandemic of coronavirus that we're currently facing, where I've already seen and heard about how this pause on our normal routines has definitely already affected a lot of workers whose paychecks rely on society functioning normally, and also small businesses. I've seen eco or conscious businesses coming out to post uh, saying that they're trying to stay afloat and would really appreciate any support that people may have because these companies are already trying to encourage slow and conscious consumers normally and may not have a lot of extra capital to be able to keep supporting the makers and everyone behind their brands. I guess my question is, if so many people's livelihoods in today's world are tied to and dependent on our collective ongoing consumption of goods and services in this capitalistic system that we're in, how can we cut back on consumption for the sustainability of our planet without also somewhat negatively affecting the people whose livelihoods are tied to that? Oh, this is a great question, Kamea. <laughs> <laughs> this is one that we struggle with all the time and one that I know really every conscious consumer struggles with, which is this catch-22 that we find ourselves in where you just explained it, right? And so from a, from a just in general perspective, here are my thoughts on that. So like one is we actually just published this morning an article that's called Five Ways to Help the Planet While You're Homebound, which is really trying to speak to people who are now, they're at home because of the situation that we're in right now. And one of the things we got asked was, like you just mentioned, how do I support my local businesses from afar? Or how do I support the businesses that I'm used to just buying things from all the time? So one thing is, I know we mentioned the power, of course, of, of capitalism to sustain people. But maybe in this instance, we kind of have to go against what I said a little bit earlier, which is kind of back to this nonprofit model around wanting to just kind of donate or figure out creative ways to give to companies without receiving something physical in return. We actually, one of the tips we said is ask your favorite shop owner or service provider. So like maybe your favorite bartender or something to set up a buy me a coffee account or have them give their PayPal or Venmo details. You could actually take the tip. You would usually tip them and send them that way. So like, Mm. you know, maybe it's not a huge amount of money, but you can be creative that way. We also think about having businesses provide things other than physical products. So what does that look like? Well, maybe it means a training that they, you know, maybe you're really into coffee and you actually would love to learn how to make a latte at home. So a coffee shop could provide access to a course where, you know, maybe you pay them a, a small amount of money and it helps them keep keep afloat, but you're not necessarily receiving something in return. And honestly, I think we're going to have to be creative when, when we think about this this situation. So yeah, thinking more through different creative ways. And of course, we're all here, we're all kind of brainstorming together. And I mean, we always say like with Brightly, like we, we like to empower other people to be loudspeakers for the planet. We like to be a loudspeaker ourselves, we're not the only voice. So we're always open to suggestions and feedback. One of the things I love about having a podcast, which we do have a podcast as well, it's called Good Together. And I love that we find different ways to engage our community when we talk about different things on the podcast. So we have people email us, we have them call in with questions. But again, like we want to make sure that people see this as a very, you know, while we do have like our curated opinion that we put out, we also want to make sure that people feel like they're a part of the conversation. And finally, before we go into our final five closing round questions, for our listener who's already 
eco-curious, eco-conscious and have taken their first steps into this world, what less discussed tips can you offer to our listener? I think we can't understate, sorry, overstate. (laughs) We can't overstate the power of sharing enough. So I'm not talking about like sharing something on Facebook. We do that. I think the day and age of people really taking that seriously is kind of past. I mean, there might be some, maybe you're a person who doesn't share this very often. So when you share something, people take note, but we all have the people that kind of crowd our feeds and you're kind of tuned them out. But I'm talking about like really organically sharing something. So bringing it up in a conversation or finding interesting ways to weave it into ongoing conversations too that are happening on social. So I see this a lot on Twitter where somebody will start a discussion and then people who feel really strongly about, I don't know, a brand they want to recommend or a product or something like that, they are like actively inserting that brand into the conversation. So if you as a conscious consumer get something from Patagonia or Brightly or really any of the brands in the space, feel free to just like give them a shout out every once in a while in your everyday conversation. If you are supporting these businesses by buying their physical product, like be excited when you when you're wearing that product or when someone comes to your house and looks at that product, like start talking about it because One of the things that we hear a lot about when we talk to our audience is people feel kind of alone as conscious consumers right now, which is probably kind of hard for me and you to think about, Kamea, because we're in this bubble a little bit. But like when you talk to people who aren't in this bubble about why they want to be conscious consumers, it comes back to supporting their values. And so they personally feel amazing about it. But maybe their parents or their spouse or their best friend don't share these values. So they feel a little bit strange to having these conversations like I just talked about. So we can support each other by coming together as a community on social, on platforms like Brightly and, and giving each other some support because I don't know. I mean, I think fast fashion, we talked a little bit about that earlier that is one of the hardest things for people to break up with, especially if you are in college or a bit, you're younger, you don't have as much money to spend on clothing, but you do have to kind of, con- a lot of people feel that they've got to conform to this like new outfit sort of exciting world that exists there. And so thinking creatively, right, like maybe you can thrift some of those pieces or something, um, but maybe you can actually com- communicate with with an engaged community who will support you and that's going to really help you help you succeed in the future. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? So a book that's been really profound for me recently 
has been a bit more business focused, but I think it's really helpful for anyone um, when they think about wanting to craft their own personal brand. So it's called building a story brand. And it basically brings the concept of either a company brand that you're building or even your own personal brand and kind of walks you through various exercises to speak more authentically with your audience. And I and I always like to think about, yeah, how can we be more authentic? How can we be more trustworthy? So it's not directly related to ethical and sustainable living, but I found it to be really, really fascinating. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I like to think about a few things. One is I like to kind of reflect on where I thought I would be a year ago, basically. And I think through, I mean, I don't think I've ever been able to predict where I was going to be a year from now. Like I said, I, I love a life that's kind of fluctuates and that's kind of always changing. And so I, yeah, I like to think back to say, what would you tell yourself a year ago? And like, could you ever even imagine that your life would change like this? So I like to give myself a little bit of comfort there because of course it is really stressful being a startup founder, but you know, I like to think about that. And then I also like to remind myself of the mission that I'm on to really help create change in an authentic way for the world. And that beyond other things really, really helps. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Oh, working out more, certainly. And of course, you know, we are all now in areas where we can't necessarily go out to the gym. But I I did invest in a Peloton bike almost a year ago. Um, We found a really good deal on one on Craigslist, which was fun. So Mm -hmm. hot tip, you don't have to get it directly from them. (laughs) But yeah, so got a good deal and have been trying to give myself more space to work out and actually use that as a stress management tool. It's really interesting to kind of think through, but it's really helpful. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? I am working on crafting an authentic voice and a really inspiring place for people to gather. So that is what Brightly is. Listeners are familiar with it now. Hopefully um, you can find it at brightly.eco, like eco-friendly. That is what I'm working on. I mean, literally just wrote an article today, had a good meeting with the team, and we're also going to be starting weekly virtual coffee chats for people who are conscious consumers that want to kind of come together to brainstorm ways to create change in the world, especially given the current climate. So we're super excited about that. We have our first one tomorrow, but they'll be on Wednesdays and you can find more information at brightly.eco slash coffee. Super excited for that. That sounds amazing. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? It is the fact that conscious consumerism is no longer a niche movement. So we are seeing more and more people become conscious consumers either by voting for their dollar or just starting to express an interest in what you and I and other people in this space have been working on for many, many years. So that's so exciting that this is becoming more and more mainstream. And I can't wait for this to explode and become (laughs) the standard by which businesses are measured in the future. Yes, absolutely. Well, Green Dreamer, as Laura just mentioned, you can head to brightly.eco to stay updated on their work. And also be sure to check out their podcast called Good Together, which I was just a guest on recently that I'll be sure to link to in the show notes as well at greendreamer.com. And then, of course, you can also find them on Instagram at brightly.eco. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. If our listener would like to learn more from you, learn more about the community that you're building or anything else, do you have any cost to action you'd like to share? 
So you can keep up with us on social and on our platform at the addresses we just mentioned. But if you really want to get involved from a community perspective, you can actually join those coffee chats like I just mentioned at brightly.eco slash coffee, or you can actually engage with us in our ambassador program. And you can find more about that on our on our platform. Perfect. And thank you so much for joining us today. Definitely sounds like very exciting things ahead of you. And we're looking forward to staying updated on everything you're working on. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? You guys are creating so much change every day. And so if you end up not having the best day, give yourself a break. Like what you are doing by supporting conscious consumerism and supporting Kamea is so impactful. So just be excited about the impact you're having and continue to create great things in the world. 